When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hi there and welcome to the Explaining History podcast and in this um, episode I want to talk um, a little bit about the one of the later phases of Mao's Cultural Revolution. Um, by 1968, once the army had intervened to restore order um, and once the, kind of the civil war phase of the Cultural Revolution um, had run its course, the party institutes um, and Mao institutes uh, the purge that really Mao had always really wanted. Firstly, um, the um, working class was purged uh, during the 1968 uh, initiative called Cleansing the Ranks, which was um, lifted really from the kind of the Stalinist playbook of, um, of doing things. The idea that after 1949, all sorts of class enemies had reinvented themselves as working class, had wormed their way into the party and into the uh, the, the new Maoist hierarchy, um, and now needed to be rooted out. That um, the revolution needed to go through a second stage of purification. Uh, in order to ensure kind of political and ideological uh, purity and the removal of, of any remaining hidden class enemies. Obviously, most of the people who were purged, um, put through uh, self-criticism, um, who were driven to suicide or who were murdered, had absolutely nothing to do with any kind of opposition to the party. These were... Often um, people who lived fairly modest, if not slightly comfortable existences before 1949, and, but who sort of remained in the memory of local party cadres who had previously been persecuted and managed to kind of escape with their lives, if not uh, having all their possessions confiscated or destroyed, um, and now who uh, were on a list somewhere and, and came back for further retribution. Um, one of the interesting features of Soviet and Chinese communism and East European communism, 20th century communism, is, if you like, is its extremely detailed and long memory. The ability uh, that once someone is designated as a class traitor or a class enemy uh, to, be, uh, to, to wind up in that pigeonhole for life and a paper trail to follow them around. 
The next phase of this um, purification process was the Up the Mountains, Down to the Villages campaign, which focused on the students and young people. Um, the Cleansing the Ranks campaign hadn't really bothered with them so far. Um, but in 1968, uh, Xu Enlai um, appeared in Tiananmen Square on the 7th of September uh, to um, stand in front of a, a crowd of um, Red Guards and Revolutionary Committees. And he said that basically young people should now be sent to factories, mines and villages to learn from the masses. And this is another key aspect of um, Maoist communism, um, that the peasantry in particular were the true revolutionary class, the revolutionary vanguard, and that they had something to teach the other social classes and groups about the revolution and about their role within it and about how to behave and function as perfect uh, communist Maoist citizens. And it also featured this idea that comes up in totalitarian ideologies throughout the 20th century that work is somehow a transformative experience. Um, you see this in various fascisms, you certainly see it in communism, that through labour, either the intellect is switched off and one can immerse oneself in the collective, you know, thousands of people toiling in the fields, or that the, the intellect or even the will or the spirit or whatever term you want to use for it is transformed in some way. That people, um, through physical labour, develop a completely different understanding of the world and that this is the real education. One isn't being educated in uh, anything intellectual. One is being educated politically, philosophically and kind of existentially. In the following 10 years, from um, 68 onwards, really to the advent of Deng Xiaoping, who um, opposed the policy, um, you have a, a transportation of millions and millions of young people to the countryside. Mm. Um, their parents very often protested and begged and pleaded with party cadres to prevent this from happening knowing that um, their children would face all sorts of hardships and indeed risks going to the countryside. There's a, a huge incidence of sexual violence against women um, on, uh, the, uh, on the far peasant farms in the countryside, um, particularly carried out by local party cadres. Um, and it would hardly be surprising if uh, men and boys um, didn't experience at least some of the same. The official decree comes in December 68, um, and it comes in one of the sort of a typical Maoist aphorism. We have two hands, let us not laze about in the city, said the, uh, the People's Daily. Uh, and Mao, very often when there was a sea change in policy, would communicate in a slightly cryptic manner through um, the People's Daily newspaper and, and other publications. However... To think of it as um, a reluctant and unhappy um, process of deportation by many of the students would be misleading. Um, in many towns and cities, long, long columns of young people marching towards the station could be seen, and there were bands playing, and there, were, uh, there was immense enthusiasm. 
there was an assumption, probably derived from Maoist propaganda posters, that um, some sort of utopia would be visited, some kind of um, Chinese pastoral bliss um, of uh, tranquil um, fields and uh, buffalo and that sort of thing uh, were, were going to be experienced. The reality, as we'll see in a moment, was much, much different. But um, the, they would be um, taken uh, on the, the front of every column were trucks broadcasting out uh, Maoist speeches and uh, patriotic music, revolutionary songs, and um, there were obviously um, references to Mao's Little Red Book. When some young people had heard Zhu Enlai um, speak in Tiananmen Square a couple of months earlier, they had left voluntarily for the countryside. They'd taken the initiative upon themselves. Um, and these were, as you find in any mass movement, the kind of the small percentage who are the real zealots, the, the passionate and true believers. But they didn't really make up the majority of young people sent to the countryside. Obviously, um, on arrival in the countryside, the reality of endless and mundane back-breaking work um, sinks in. And students who are completely unsuited to that kind of physical labour um, are subjected to uh, exhausting routines. Um, the, the peasants themselves uh, you know, would find tiring and hard, uh, but are, are more accustomed to, uh, more able to cope with. If days in the field aren't bad enough, the complete lack of any sort of preparation for the campaign, um, as with most of the things in the Cultural Revolution, it is an idea that is really thought of in the spur of the moment. It may have been gestating in the Mao, uh, Maoist sort of mentality uh, for some years, but it is carried out without any planning. So in many uh, villages across China, there's no accommodation. Young people are sent with a, an allowance to pay for some accommodation, but often this is confiscated when they arrive in the villages, often by the local party cadre or by peasants who are desperate. Um, the desperation that the peasants um, feel is uh, an acute economic one. China had not, by 1968, recovered from the Great Leap Forward. Famine had ended, but hunger and pockets of starvation had not. And the, um, the Chinese economy had been profoundly weakened by the Great Leap Forward, and the advent of the Cultural Revolution in 1966 had once again added to that chaos and added to shortages and hardships. So where young people were being sent, they were being sent from towns and cities where there were shortages anyway, but they were actually being sent to areas of, of, of acute hunger. And once again, this clashed with the fantasy that many young people had created for themselves. If you remember previously, I talked uh, about the Red Guards it's, um, a couple of weeks ago, and there were opportunities for young people to travel for free across China. And so many of the Red Guards who had been to see Mao speak in Beijing um, simply engaged in a kind of a Maoist interrailing um, for uh, several months uh, at an end, travelling for free, 
and seeing the country, the vast country um, that they'd been born in for the first time. And it was, for many of them, a very exciting and quite romantic period. And a couple of years later, you can imagine how these fantasies must have lingered. There was um, a belief among many young people who went to the countryside that there would be some manner of unlimited leisure time. There's all sorts of fun pursuits like hiking and skiing and swimming in rivers would be possible. And obviously, I mean, it shows a kind of a deep naivety as to what peasant life is actually like. The whole point about uh, peasant existence is there is no time. There is simply manual work, uh, eating and sleeping, and eating, in this case, if you're lucky. So um, there, there, there is a lot here about the kind of the meeting of reality and fantasy, where fantasy normally evaporates fairly quickly. There's an interesting um, postscript to this story. Um, when, if you read... Um Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Strange Rebels by Christian Carroll. Um, one of the strange rebels in question is Deng Xiaoping, and the uh, he's, writing, he's writing really about the year uh, 1979. Well, in 79, Deng Xiaoping visited the USA, and he was um, stood alongside uh, Jimmy Carter, um, arranging all sorts of nice technology transfers from uh, America to China and trade deals and that kind of thing, and was uh, highly impressed when he walked around American shopping malls uh, and packed supermarkets and thought, this is how we do it. Um, so he was invited to a, a, a meeting, a, a dinner at the White House, and was sat uh, amazingly next to Shirley MacLaine. Uh, these are the kind of encounters you really can't make up. And Shirley MacLaine a liberal Hollywood celebrity, much in the, the, the vein of um, those you might find by now, um, lauded Maoist China. She had made a documentary film there uh, about the, the simple good peasant people of China, and she recounted a story to Deng Xiaoping. And it was a story of coming across a, a Chinese village uh, and finding a, a professor of physics 
labouring and toiling in the field. And the professor of physics had said to Shirley MacLaine how happy he was to be able to toil with the people. And Deng Xiaoping interrupted and said, he was lying to you. And Shirley MacLaine has essentially nothing to say at this moment. And Deng Xiaoping said, he was lying to you. And by the way, physics professors should be teaching in universities, not working in the fields. And that really kind of encapsulates um, a, a, an interesting moment that I really want to um, focus on in, um, in the near future, on this transition from uh, Maoism to what you might call, what David Harvey calls, neoliberalism with Chinese characteristics, whereby the last vestiges of Maoism were swatted aside and the enthusiasm to uh, undo uh, Maoist politics, Maoist policies, um, was uh, palpable across the country. One of the risks associated with leaving the towns and cities um, was that one's status as a Chinese citizen changed as well. Uh, the, there were restrictions on peasants moving from the land to the cities and back again, uh, and students that left the cities were redesignated as countryside dwellers, uh, and that meant they were no longer entitled to return. So it was a permanent state of affairs there were some Chinese uh, students um, who uh, thought that, um, believed the idea that the, the peasants were the essence of, of the revolution, in, in essence, the, the essence of real China, um, what it meant really to be Chinese. Um, and they were enthused by the idea of getting to know them. And there's an interesting parallel um, between the, this period of time, uh, not a direct parallel, but a, an interesting one nonetheless, between this and the, the um, 19th century um, Russian populist to the people campaign, where Russian uh, populist parties, the Narodniks um, and others, organised a uh, wave, a generation of uh, Russian uh, students and uh, intelligentsia to go and live with the peasants on the land um, and to try to encourage them uh, to, uh, in the ways of revolution and also to learn about um, peasant um, social organising and uh, the, the mir and the, the village commune, the obshina, um, into the bargain. And so it was hoped that there would be this transmission of ideas from students to peasants and back again. And uh, the reality in Russia is immensely disappointing that uh, peasants have no interest in revolution and they have little interest in anything else other than the possibility of acquiring more land. That literacy levels are low and explaining revolutionary ideas is very difficult and the notion of overthrowing the Tsar is seen as absurd and ridiculous and many of the students are thenceforth denounced to the, the third section, the Tsarist secret police. And the thing that seems to be the, the parallel in those two cases is this sort of strange kind of pastoral fantasy that exists uh, about peasant life. And I suppose it's a romanticism you see in many cultures. I mean, if you look at the romantic poets of early 19th century uh, Britain, you look to the, the evil satanic mills of the Industrial Revolution and 
hark back to a more uh, innocent era, um, ignoring the fact that kind of more innocent eras never really are that innocent, and there are all sorts of uh, advantages that eventually come with modernity. There are um, re- reactions to modernity pretty much wherever you go. Uh, this perhaps can be explained slightly in that manner. One underreported and um, understudied area of the up the mountains down to the villages campaign are the levels of death uh, amongst young people. Um, statistics vary, and there is obviously a complication with statistics in kind of collecting them in rural China, where often people went missing. Um, there were, uh, it looks like, a large number of suicides. Um, suicide seems to be a kind of a recurring theme throughout Maoist China, um, uh, the, as a kind of a, a main, a major source of, of morbidity. There were people that died in accidents. Um, there, it's possible um, at a, a greater rate than the indigenous peasant peoples. But also there was a great deal of violence. There was violence against newcomers um, for whom the, uh, the local Chinese peasants um, had little time or sympathy. There were beatings when um, the students couldn't harvest or plant or uh, do agricultural work uh, fast enough. And there was violence when students um, stumbled into complicated uh, peasant politics uh, surrounding uh, long-standing feuds, resentments, land ownership, the um, fallout from collectivization, the fallout from communalization, the fallout from um, the Great Leap Forward, and um, the the kind of um, soap opera sort of stuff that happens in tight-knit communities. Often there would be um, work teams run by the army, um, the military discipline meted out on students who were essentially working as uh, untrained conscripts, um, was quite regular and often brutal and sadistic. Um, students uh, could often wind up being beaten to death by soldiers. And as I previously mentioned, sexual violence against women was rife. Um, uh, women who went to the countryside often tried to uh, band together to uh, protect themselves, but very often this was um, fairly useless, uh, fairly ineffective. Now, one possibility here that helps to explain why Maoism so quickly crumbles after 1976 is that the, 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 the last vanguard of Maoism uh, at this point was, uh, was youth, um, students, the kinds of people that comprised the Red Guards. And these are the people, if they survived the experience, who would uh, grow up um, into um, adulthood, into their 30s and 20s and 30s and 40s, and uh, become the, the next generation of um, uh, main Chinese breadwinners and taxpayers. And so um, when they become disillusioned with Maoism, it's a real problem. Now, in um, The Cultural Revolution of People's History by Frank Dakota, um, he, he has a really nice little vignette. He writes, 
One young man in Hunan remembered his pride at being selected to work in the countryside in 1969. And now, I simply while away the days. I've lost interest in books and newspapers, and I've lost any concern for the fatherland's future or mankind's dreams. I merely get through the motions by mechanically eating, working, eating again, as if I have become a mere beast working to earn a living. Now, in there, I think, is something really crucial. Firstly, the, the young man refers to the fatherland's future or mankind's dreams. These kinds of utopianisms that, again, you saw in early Stalinist Russia, uh, people in the Komsomol believing that they were building the world of tomorrow, um, and the, the young people in China who uh, went to the land, again, believed something equally utopian. You know, they, they wouldn't have volunteered in such large numbers. And the death of that idealism uh, across an entire generation who experienced, um, after the first flush of the Cultural Revolution, the real realities of uh, Maoism. They, in essence, went from being the perpetrators of the Cultural Revolution, you know, tormenting their teachers and things like that, to being its victims. Um, it meant that the core constituency of um, later Maoism wound up deeply resenting the, the system that they had once supported. Maoism's undoing as well, um, and again, we'll explore this one later, is I, uh, partly explainable by the fact that despite everything that was said uh, about the, the peasants, no demographic in China suffers more than they do. It's, they make up the majority of famine deaths, 1958 to 1962. And they have they get precious little out of Maoism. Some uh, peasants benefit from the redistribution of land, but this is fairly fleeting. And the undoing of Maoism after 1976 suggests that they too have very little invested in the idea either. Anyway, there we must leave it. Um, thanks very much for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And I'll catch you later today, probably, or perhaps tomorrow, on the next Explaining History podcast. All the best. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.